Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today is Professor Lenore Manderson, who is a distinguished professor of public health and medical anthropology in the School of Public Health at the University of the Witwatersrand. She also holds appointments with Brown University in the USA and Monash University, Australia. She's known internationally for her research, training, mentorship, and published work on inequality and the social context of infectious and chronic diseases in Australia, Southeast and East Asia, as well as Africa. Welcome to the show, Professor Manderson. Thank you very much. Prof. Manderson, to begin with, one of my all-time favorite sayings is a quote from Dr. Seuss, which says, the more that you read, the more things you will know, the more that you learn, the more places you'll go. And your career has certainly taken you all over the world. So to start with, please tell us more about medical anthropology. So medical anthropology is a subfield of anthropology um, and while some people who are medical anthropologists come from a medical background and that is they were trained first as doctors and then did a PhD in anthropology, most of us have come from the social sciences and then focused on this area of specialisation. So what we're interested in are the social ways in which people experience health and illness, um, the social factors that underline people's propensity to become infected or to develop a particular disease, questions of health systems and access to services, um, the meaning of, of health itself or what well-being means. So it's a very broad field and the important thing which anthropologists emphasise are questions of context and that context includes the environment and it includes political, economic and social formations. And so you can imagine that at present anthropologists are, when we're not overwhelmed like everybody else in the world, are fascinated by what's happening with COVID-19 because it's a classic case where anthropology is engaged at all levels and that includes in terms of um, modes of infection and health prevention measures and responses from the state and responses from the population. It must almost be a real-time study of the discipline happening at pace. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, it, it's it's horrendous. Um, and it's partly horrendous because it does what many other infectious diseases do. That is, it tracks the fault lines of society. And we always said that of HIV, that it wasn't, you know, particular behaviours independently. It was the people were vulnerable who particularly were poor and weren't in a position to follow prevention behaviours. The same is true for COVID, that although the initial infections suggested that it might be um, a an infection that was um, blind, if you like, to class and wealth. In fact, it's not true. And the poorer you are, 
the less likely, the more vulnerable you are, including the more likely you are to have a range of diseases that will make you um, particularly um, vulnerable in terms of physical health outcomes. So people with diabetes or heart disease or chronic obstructive lung disease and so on are all vulnerable but it's the conditions in which people live and very poor people live in crowded conditions and um, often don't even have hygiene facilities or they have limited access to hygiene they certainly are not going to be able to afford to get disposable masks every day when the most important thing is going to be getting food on the table and so there is a real disproportion in terms of who is infected and the capacity of those individuals to respond to infect infection in a timely way. Continuously in every type of pandemic like this, as you say, it exposes the fault lines. Fault lines we don't even know about. And I think one, it struck me actually today that there's been almost no writing about, there's been discussions around um, race, partly because of Black Lives Matter and the violence against people in South Africa as well as the US as well as elsewhere and there has of course been attention to age and it's one of the first times we've talked about ageism and the way in which ageism plays out in terms of people's life choices and, and chances um, in, in including really very crudely in terms of people's um, concern around who's dying. I mean if as many people were dying but they're all under the age of one there would be riots in the streets but one of the areas that hasn't even been talked about really is the likely differential effect on women excepting in south africa in terms of gender-based violence but there are other ways in which gender is implicated for this pandemic as for others and that includes the fact that women are the ones who are caring for people at home. They're often the income earners. They're the caregivers for people who are vulnerable. Um, and where they can, um, where there is homeschooling, which is not in all countries and in all places, they're the ones who are doing most of that teaching as well. And women are always more likely to put ahead of their own needs, the needs of their family and particularly their children. So with shrinking household incomes, then the burden of making ends meet very clearly falls on women's shoulders. You're completely right with women being primary caregivers and trying to incorporate budgets. And even when I look to some of the interventions that companies have tried to put in place where they're saying, reducing work hours, but that means reduced pay. You've still got mouths to feed and let's face it, prices haven't gone down and you still need to supply your household. So given some of the learnings that have emerged in, uh, and it, it has been a, a, a relatively short period of time, what types of findings are you finding on how to better manage the disease especially from the perspective of women who rightly so are in this case probably more vulnerable than most yeah um i i have absolutely no way of responding to that because i do think that we're not in a position yet 
of thinking through what ought to be done. I mean, everyone is reacting on a day-by-day basis still in terms of talking about social distancing and continuing to maintain arguments around hygiene and so on. Um, and therefore, there. I mean, what we we're in a position of of doing, including through research and through writing, and I'm doing a fair bit of writing at present around COVID is simply getting these conversations going. Gender-based violence is the exception, and there has been a sustained concern that quarantining or isolation and curfews and so on um, lead to anger and frustration and tensions in households and and greater control of women because women are never on their own to get, to leave a place where they're not safe for help. So that is a concern. We're talking about COVID, which is obviously on everyone's minds at at the moment. But to go back a little in time, can you share with us some of the memorable landmarks in your career so far? Um, which is really hard to even think through were there landmarks mostly they were points of serendipity so i'm australian as people will hear from my accent and i lived in canberra and when i was first finished my phd the the point was that there were no jobs for academics sitting around and at that time really if you were female then you knew you were behind the eight ball and, you know, that the, if there were two jobs and one person was male and one person was female, then the job would go to the male. And I had, even my PhD supervisor had said to me, I think it's a waste of time for women to do PhDs. And so there were a series of these kind of, you know, statements, you know, that really fed into my own sense of self. Um, but at the point at which I was looking for a job, my husband had said, you have to go anywhere we will survive. But if you sit here in Canberra and all you end up doing is getting a job photocopying documents for some male professor or whoever, then you'll go nowhere. And so I did. And so, I mean, the the decision to move and I then commuted, I went to Sydney. I went back to Canberra once a week. It was, you know, 300 kilometre distance between the two cities. So a bit like working in Bloemfontein and coming back to Johannesburg or the reverse. And I I did that for 10 years, including when my children were very little. And I think that gave me a real determination that I was not going to bow down and start doing what was expected of a woman with little children and yield what I'd fought hard for. The second major thing was... I was appointed to a full professorship at 36, which was pretty young. Um, I was certainly younger than everybody else in the medical school, usually by about 20 years. But I was also one of the only women at that level. And I think that the decision-making involved in appointing me to that um, was important. And the decision to move and, and to move cities with the family and then work in a job that took me overseas um, when my children were little, you know, 20 to 26 weeks a year sometimes of short visits away and back and away and back. 
that was really very important. It was like a fast forward in gaining the skills that I now have. So that was really important. Prof. Manderson, if you don't mind me interrupting you here, when you were doing your PhD and when you attained your professorship, this would have been in the 70s, and this was also one of the major waves of feminism movements. Yeah, it was. And um, and I was involved in women's liberation and a thing called Women's Electoral Lobby, which was designed to get women elected into Parliament. Australia had a very, very poor reputation, um, as indeed it still, you know, it has for, it had, did for a long time. And we've only, still only ever had one woman as Prime Minister. And Australia does not have a great record in terms of gender equity. But what Women's Liberation did was to encourage me to think critically about the things that I was facing all the time, like having people bully me for being female or be um, dismissive of my interests. And any of us in the early 70s were really engaged in what was happening. And then I started doing work on women in politics as my PhD topic in Malaysia. And I came back and took 18 months off to work with the Australian government during International Women's Year, originally as research director and then as um, deputy coordinator of the Secretariat for Women's Year. And, and it was quite extraordinary. In 1975, the Australian government had dedicated over a million dollars for a program for women um, so it was during that period that women's health centres were established, women's rape crisis centres, and a range um, of other interventions. There were conferences on women in politics, women in work. And in that context, you know, you, you one get caught up with the general argument, but women's liberation was always um, very intent on getting people who were politically active to live those politics themselves. You know, there was the um, trope that um, uh, the personal is the political. And I think the reverse was true too. So that we were always thinking through what was going on. I mean, why were there so few women in politics? Why were women so degraded all the time? Why was there so much violence against women? Why were women humiliated when they want to go to jobs? So that was really very, very foundational. And then I went from there to having to make a decision about staying, going back and finishing my PhD. And I'll tell you, I, I was asked a very funny question by my husband who said to me, you know, I had to make a decision. Do I stay on in federal government in Australia or do I become an academic? And he said, well, where do you want to be when you're 60? Now, I was 24, and 24-year-olds don't actually think often about being 60. And it was really peculiar because I'd never thought about that question. And I said, without it pausing, I want to say I wrote that row of books and sort of waved my hand vaguely in front of a, um invisible row of books and he said, well, go back to Malaysia and finish your PhD and I'll see you when you come back. So I packed up and went. And and it has been, you know, I mean, I go to 
South Africa for six months of the year now. And that was my other most important decision. You asked for highlights. And the highlight was the point at which I decided to leave Australian academic life in my early 60s and moved to South Africa for work. And it was the best thing I could have done. It's been really one of the happiest academic decisions I've ever made. Please tell us more about what you're doing with VITS and the program that you are, are leading. Well, I mean, the, the, the broad academic program is simply a way of capturing what my academic interests are. But the background was that um, VITS made a decision in 2013 to um, appoint a few distinguished professors to jobs, either full-time or part-time. Um, and it is such an exciting country and you can't be lazy in South Africa. And I mean intellectually lazy. And that's one of the things that I, I so enjoy about it. So I'm missing it enormously. So it's very nice talking with you for that reason. I think this is also one of the the benefits that we've starting to establish from our COVID era of being able to deal with work on a virtual basis. So obviously one would want to be physically present all the time, but we now have the, the tools or, or let's say the, the, the will and the motivation to make better use of them. Yeah, and I'd been doing that for, for some time. So I found the transition relatively easy. I taught for five years in a master's course with Brown University. So there was quite a bit of um, screen time in that course. And you asked me actually what I was doing at FITS. And so what I do at FITS as a distinguished professor is firstly, I um, am responsible for a number of PhD students and intermittently postdoctoral students working in a range of issues, but um, often around questions that I would include in terms of thinking around technologies, and that includes screening tools and as much as physical technology. So it's not about biomedical technology, it is in terms of sort of the structures through which medical and other healthcare is delivered. And I have a research project which I'm very eager to get going in Mumpumalanga on ageing and dementia. And I'm involved in a project also um, across South Africa on assisted reproduction and the way in which reproduction is negotiated, um, including through infertility clinics and so on. And then I have been collaborating with um, colleagues on various health conditions I've just put in a, for a grant and have done some work on antibiotic resistance and which we all thought would be the next big health scare you know none of us really anticipated a virus that we couldn't understand that was new but we were certainly concerned that overuse of antibiotics would be a disaster nationally and globally and that's still true so i do a range of things and then i um, am responsible for a mentorship program with junior academics in the School of Public Health. So I directly mentor a few people in the hope of supporting them um, and encouraging them in the, their own fields. 
Thank you for highlighting the work that you're doing in, in South Africa and, and the various projects with Mpumalanga, with ageism, with dementia, and, and taking a, let, let's say it's a perspective that probably hasn't been investigated as, as thoroughly as it could have. You also spoke about being 24 and when your husband asked you, what, where would you like to be at 60? And you've said, pointing to a virtual row of shelves. Now, that virtual row has turned into an absolute reality. You're an author, editor, and co-author of over 700 books, articles, book chapters, and reports. Your virtual shelf has certainly come to life in that respect. You edit the Journal of Medical Anthropology, as well as the Medical Anthropology Health, Inequality, and Social Justice series, which looks at social patterns of, as well as social responses to ill health, disease, and suffering, and how social exclusion and social justice shape health and healing outcomes. Can you please tell us about some of your, your observations concerning women and the way that they are having to deal with health care, both to children as well as to, to the elderly, and how to better reduce the inequality that they experience. I wish I had a really easy answer to that because if it related to policy structures and the law, women would be equal to men in every respect in South Africa. And so the fact that that is not the case, that there are still um, more men than women in powerful jobs and that women are still necessarily having to prove themselves for senior jobs, that women still take on the burden of responsibility in homes. And there is an assumption that um, women will behave differently from men in all of those things. I mean, it, it, you know, it, that oughtn't to be the case in South Africa. It, ought to, it, it would certainly be the case in other countries when you don't have those support systems. Um, the only thing about South Africa is that we do have legal structures that protect and give permission to people, women themselves and others working with um, NGOs and the gov governments themselves to begin to address or to continue to address inequality in ways that don't exist elsewhere in on the continent. And I have two PhD students at present, both ironically men. Um, well, one's graduated from Kenya and one is completing from Uganda. And both of those men, who are both quite young men, have been looking at the relationship of maternal mortality and access to abortion and sexual and reproductive health care. And there is a direct relationship, that is that women are less likely to die in childbirth or when they're pregnant, where women are less likely to die in pregnancy, where there is access to safe abortion as an option, as a backup for other kinds of contraception. And South Africa is one of the few places, countries on the continent that assure that women have a choice for all kinds of reasons and that, you know, affects all kinds of women who may be raped, 
um, may not have expected that they were going to get pregnant. They may have had contraceptive failure. But if women have to work outside of the law to protect their own health and the health of others in their family, then you've already got a problem. And understanding that, and I think understanding the, lim the relationship between the law and everyday life is an issue. No one has yet come to grips with how to manage um, what is really endemic violence against women in this country, but elsewhere on the continent too. And that is clearly a major factor that impacts on women. Nowhere in the world have we resolved the problem, the assumption that women will do extra work. And one of the challenges at present during the lockdown has been that women have ended up doing the cooking, the cleaning and everything else and the homeschooling and attempted to keep their day jobs, whereas men have kept their day jobs. And, you know, I know from talking to junior colleagues of mine just how hard that is so that they're carrying often a heavy um, burden of trying to maintain their goals but doing you know more work than they've ever done before in the home as well as outside the home and often doing basic things like sharing a computer with their children for learning if they're lucky enough to have a computer at home while their husband has his very own computer for his work and so there are all kinds of everyday inequalities that um, continue to work against women but, you know, having said all of that, I mean, I think, you know, the real issue is still that a large proportion of women in this country live on their own so that there is no such thing as a stable partnership. And those women carry great responsibility for care and they don't have often much choice in terms of the kinds of work they're doing. So while we're worrying about massive unemployment, one has to also be asking, well, who's losing? Women are more likely to have lost their jobs with lockdown and will be less likely to be um, employed at a the same level even, or to find work um, as the country unlocks. The point about that is that there is structural reasons for women being discriminated against at all kinds of levels. You know, I see that all the time in terms of, you know, who makes a decision about caring for someone where they're sick and what kinds of compromises occur. And the compromises tend to be that women will care for their children and will not, um, if they can afford it, will not defer medical attention for sick children. And they won't defer um, paying for medical care for a male partner if they have one, but they will defer for their own health. And I think, therefore, women are enormously vulnerable. Brooke Manderson, in these structural inequalities, in everything that you've said about highlighting the, the vulnerability of women and that they put in more than their fair share, is there a silver lining? Will we get to a point where women don't have to bear this completely imbalanced burden? You know, I would have thought it would have happened by now. And I think one of, you know, we're talking earlier about 
you know, International Women's Year and the early women's liberation movement in the 70s in Australia. And at that point, we did set up things like rape crisis centres and childcare for women. And there was a big... It turned out, I didn't know for many years, that I was the first person to argue for abortion rights for women on national television in Australia. Um, retrospectively, I'm horrified, like I would have been 20 you know, and it wasn't as if I'd ever had an abortion either, but I was very forceful. <laughs> and so I did argue that point. But I really felt like, I mean, if you've established almost 50 years ago that women need childcare to support them so that they can work too, we need to have things like rape crisis centres, we need women's health centres and so on, that that would then be taken for granted. But what's happened in the last two decades is many of those gains have been unpicked. And one of the things that really worries me, and again, South Africa is the exception, it's not the rule, are countries where that is being quite consciously unpicked. So there is a deep conservatism now that means that we minimally cannot just assume that things things are now okay, that we always have to be on the guard and to be looking for where women are losing out and to be mindful that gender, along with race and class, are fundamental ways in which society organises privilege and power. 50 years ago, you participated in this incredible activism. You'd had the Year of International Women and it wasn't as though Australia was the only country to, to participate. No, and the whole world was participating, absolutely. I've been trying to rationalise reasons for why we're not there yet. And I wonder if it's perhaps got to do with the fact that we live in this multi-generational era where you've got legacy views from someone who uh, was probably 50 in, in the 70s uh, or, or whatever age may be. And you've got a new generation that comes in, a younger generation that is exposed to new ideas, new new opportunities, and, and wants new ways of thinking, but yet is potentially held back because of older views that seem to be the prevailing consensus. Well, that's one way to look at it, accepting somebody who had very conservative views in the 50s isn't and who was 50 in in 1970s is not alive right so we're talking about younger people dominating um than that i think that for some wealthy countries there was a period of a kind of post-feminism and that's in quotes right because i don't believe it existed but i think that for a long time people felt well the battle had been won and it no longer mattered and that one was a naivety born of ignorance about the lives of many women in the world so that whilst some countries were very active in terms of women's rights. I mean, we still don't have a woman president in South Africa. Well, there are many reasons for that, but still, um, America's not had a woman president. Um, no. The UK's only had two. Australia had one, and she was the only prime minister I can remember who was persistently and consistently put down on the basis of gender not on the yes. basis of her policies. And I do think, therefore, it's a very hard battle. And, and you know, there are, there are times that um, over the years when I felt 
really very unconfident about my own work and then you know realize that a lot of that just comes from what people ask of women and how women are being judged and the effect for me of when I was a young woman of being put down and being told that it was a waste of time training me to do a doctorate um, had almost a lifetime of effect on me. I mean, it took me a very long time to not feel that um, I was not as worthy as the men in the same business. And part of that then gets reflected back, I think, in my own interest in mentoring women because nobody should have to feel that they are inadequate just because they are female. And, you know, I mean, I say to my own students, I've spent much of my life, like most women, feeling an imposter. And truly, if I look at my own self as somebody else, if I feel that, then how do women who are struggling and who haven't had the advantage of simply being able, for, probably from personality reasons, to grab a moment as it appears and then have a spouse who says, well, you commute, it's okay. I'll look after the children. You go overseas. I had genuine support that most women don't get and was tenacious. But even tenacity doesn't help you doubt yourself a lot of the time. So it's really important to be supporting women consciously and making that a priority. And with the supporting element, I've seen it countless times, particularly in the corporate space, where women are held back because there is an overseas trip and the overseas trip potentially will lead to a promotion, but she's concerned about who's going to take care of the children. And in all of those instances, I never once saw a man back down because of his family responsibilities. The men all went, and it was the woman who sacrificed their career for the sake of looking after their family. So having the right type of support is is absolutely fundamental to, to ensure that women can excel and, and succeed, to, to really embrace those opportunities. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Indeed. I was lucky and am enormously grateful for the fact that I did have someone who stood down and, and made sure that I grabbed the moment. And the argument was, well, you're at the beginning of your career. I've already got one. Why, why do I need it when you're the one who must do it? And that was the logic. And, and it's the logic that sustained us through our lives, I think. And, and that's one of the dilemmas for us. It's not necessarily always that women won't get the opportunity, but when it comes to making a decision about whether you can go off for four weeks and assume that your child will be taken to and from school and that the clothes will be washed and the food will be cooked, that's the dilemma for women. And, you know, most people don't have good enough support systems from someone who genuinely believes that they are entitled to the support, that that's a right. And women um, who are academics, certainly, and I think other women in senior positions need that kind of support, which is simply the support of creating space to get on with the work job that you're doing. And that then goes back to a question around um, what we think people do when they're working and what imp how work is important in people's lives 
and work is no less important in women's lives if there be in paid work than it is for men. But we do privilege men's work regardless of what it is. Prof Madison, if you had a magic wand, given your lived experiences, looking towards the future of a woman, what do you think we need to build a, a more egalitarian society where there are no limits? The magic wand would simply be to believe that, that there are no limits. And, I mean, you, one occasionally sees that there was an article in today's newspaper and the fact that you had a very young woman on the front page of a newspaper um, was striking because normally you don't. Normally the faces on the front page, if they're female, are actors or singers um, or models and not inventors. Um, it would be really nice to think that gender genuinely didn't matter. And I think that that's, you know, true in in all kinds of, of ways. But certainly, you know, for so long as we have to fill out a form that says male or female, then, you know, we you know it's not going to be because there's an equity issue and someone's going to say, oh, no, we're only appointing women this time round. Um, so there still is an inbuilt bias that it would it certainly would be lovely to disappear it um i think that in in the reality is that in the next several years we have a very hard time ahead of us because i do think that the ongoing fallout of this particular pandemic is that many women will be more women will be unemployed and if they're employed supporting more people who are unemployed than they have in the past and the big issue you know i mean it certainly affects people in south africa but i think it will affect people worldwide brock madison we are unfortunately running out of time could i please ask you to share a few words of inspiration for young women that are listening to us on the show today across the continent you know, I think the, the most important thing is to have a dream or to have a goal and to work towards it and to be rather single-minded. And I do think that relates to what we were talking about before. I don't expect everyone to say, oh, I want to say I wrote that row of books. But I do want some women to be able to think, this is where I want to go and this is what I'm going to do. And to put that ahead of a few other things. Because I also think that other life goals fall into place. But in the world of work, then you really have to be very focused, you know, whether whether you fall in love with someone and whether you end up living with them and whether you have children, I don't think that you can, you know, at 18 or at 17 or at 30 say, I really want a really nice partner and I'll just wish it and work really hard to get one. It, that doesn't work like that. But the world of work does, um, unfold with focus and commitment and excitement and and you know for me actually one of the things that is most important is not the goal because I wasn't just singly focused on writing so much that I would get the row of books done ahead of time 
it was the absolute excitement of being able to do the work I do. And that did include for me because, you know, of my work in public health as an anthropologist, of going into the field in different countries in the world. And um, so everything from reading to writing to teaching to working with health workers, all of that, underpinning that all is an absolute enthusiasm. And, you know, the joke in our house is around um, the fact that my idea of a fabulous evening after a meal is to come back to my study and do more work. But I don't think of it as work. It's simply what I do all of the time. And I do think that that being getting that right and, and being committed is what will propel people. Um, and then it's hard work. And, and people always say, and it is a truism, you know, that you know, people who become successful spent 95% of sweat and, and you know, 5% of, of, of luck or, or good connections and so on. And it is hard work, like, like anything else. And I think that there is a parallel with people who work, say, as artists, that becoming an artist involves not being, not imagining not doing it, right? This is not, not a job for money. This is about I really have to create and that's what I do every day. And I think that that's equally as true for people in government or in business or in academia if, if they're lucky enough to have found what they're good at, that, that you don't let go of it. And it's that commitment. And I think that, that then for me, in mentoring people, that's also really important to help them find what it is they don't want to let go and then work towards that. It sounds as though you certainly found your passion, but not only about finding your passion and your enthusiasm for the work and the commitment that you do, but establishing a mechanism where you can give back that attitude and help ignite someone who's younger to go on and fulfill their own personal dreams i hope so i hope so i mean i you know i take enormous pride i mean one you know my my happy days are when people submit a phd and get their award you know a long long time ago it bothered me world um and and the background to that was actually being in the philippines and parts of the philippines are so poor and it was such a shock having been in China, you know, that the difference between the two countries was palpable. And this was in the very early 1990s. And I came back thinking, you know, how can I even get up in the morning and look in the mirror because I'm not changing anybody's life and and doing anything that, that has some kind of flow on of good. But the answer to that, which I found for myself was, I train people who work more directly in the front line and every one of my PhD students in the Philippines went on to do things that mattered in the Philippines, but my support of them mattered to them. And I mean, and that's true for other people who I've trained around the world. And I do think, you know, that it has mattered to them. I mean, I hope it still does. I mean, I still am in contact with many of them and there are, you know, well over 150, 160 people who've been trained by me in, for higher degrees. And, and it is around having someone who they feel believes in them. And so there is a, um, 
a sort of an underlying empowerment that goes into that relationship and I do the one thing I can do really which is well two things I write and I and I support people I, I support them through editing and other things as well I guess but it is around how that kind of work enables other people thank you so much for sharing uh, your personal experiences the way that you have touched other people's lives for them to go on an impact within their own communities and societies it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Lenore Manderson, who is a distinguished professor of public health and medical anthropology in the School of Public Health at the University of the Witwatersrand. Rand.